spend a, a little bit of time there. I want to thank the, the other guys for inviting me to take part in the rotation. It's, uh, it's exciting for me to be back a part of this, and um, I know that it's a little bit of a sacrifice for them to make, make room like that, and so I appreciate that very much. Um, you know, I was thinking, it's interesting, the, the three Sunday school teachers that we have, you know, it's um, with, with Jim, Jeff, and um, Jack, you know, that's all the J's. I thought, well, I'm coming in and messing that up. But then I remembered, it's sad that I have to remember something like this, but my first name is John, yeah. So I guess I fit right in. Okay, well, we're going to be in Luke, and what the, the, uh, the thinking is, uh, because there are four teachers, we need to be careful how much time we each take uh, to, to make sure everybody's got, a, got enough time to teach what they have. So what we're going to do, there's 24 chapters. I'll show you in a, in a second how it's commonly broke, broken up, and I think I've figured out a way that we can go through it in, uh, in uh, four, four sections, uh, and so that means we'll be doing, it'll be a survey, but uh, I, I think a fairly in-depth one. We'll hit certain topics throughout the book and uh, spend some time on each of those topics. So let's pray and get right into this. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that it is to hear from you. And we ask for your wisdom in doing so that you be honored. We thank you that you're not silent, but you do speak. And so we want to hear, Lord. But we know that apart from your wisdom, that's just impossible. And so we thank you for the privilege of asking you for that and for your promise, Lord, to give generously and without reproach. And so we look forward, Lord, with anticipation to what you want to say to us through the Gospel of Luke. And again, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Gospel of Luke. Let's start with the, uh, the first four verses just to take a look real quick at Luke's reasons for writing the gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So we know Luke wrote actually two volumes. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. He addressed both of them to Theophilus, that Theophilus might have a, a good understanding of, of the truth, so that you may know the exact truth. I appreciate uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary statement on this. It's simply to show that his faith in Christ rested on firm historical fact. That's an exciting thing. You know, that Luke took the time to really do the research, to talk to the witnesses, to compile all the facts together, and to, to write it down like this, to where it's, it, we know, we know this is fact. And that's, uh, to me, that, that's really exciting, plus I'm very appreciative of him taking that, that kind of time and putting that kind of effort into this. Also, there's a, a, another reason, a big reason for him writing this. He wanted to present Christ as the Son of Man. At least 20 times in the Gospel, he uses this phrase to describe Christ. 
and Christ actually uses it himself as the, the Son of Man. And probably the, the strongest statement of those 20 is found in chapter 19, verse 10, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So this is a, you know, an exciting statement to think that this is Christ's heart toward us. Uh, Son of Man, just thinking about that in preparation, you know, there's, there's a lot of different uh, commentaries, uh, a lot of different, um, uh, people have a lot to say about this. But something that really sticks out with me in, in Jesus being presented as the Son of Man that, uh, that really has impacted me that I, I greatly appreciate is, um, it, I think it's kind of described to us over in, in the book of Hebrews. If you don't mind, turn over there in chapter 2. I want to show you what I'm talking about. Just finished going through the book of Hebrews this last week with the students at His Hill, so it's really fresh on my mind. Now, the book is written for the purpose of anything that's good. And so it's interesting, everything that he's comparing Christ to, every one of these things are good things. Uh, given by God, and I think it's you know it's just so easy for us to take the good of God and take these these individual things and put them in the place of Christ, and then all of a sudden they're not good anymore. So the writer's encouraging people to consider Jesus, to 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 remember that He is better, and to be taken with Him. Uh, so in chapter two, it start well. The book starts off with showing that Jesus is better than the prophets. The prophets being being good, certainly. Better than the angels, the angels being good. And then in chapter 2, he wants the reader to understand that Jesus is the better man for man. And so starting in verse 5, he starts to lay this argument out. And we, uh, then we get to verse 8, in talking about mankind, you and me, he says, You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And that's a, if that was the end of the chapter, it would be a very depressing message that we don't see man living the way man was created to live. He's supposed to, according to Genesis, he's supposed to live in authority, living out the image of God, supposed to live in authority over this creation, but we don't see man doing that. But then we come to the next verse, because it's, verse 8 is not the end. The next verse says this, but we do see him. Don't see mankind living as man's supposed to live, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Now, that's the same phrase that's used back in uh, verse 6, uh, it's, it's six or, in verse 7, to describe mankind. So we see that, we see here that somebody has been made, the one that we do see has been made like us, has been made like man. Who is it? Jesus. Now there's an interesting comment that Wiest makes about the name Jesus here. He says this, When the reader of the English translation comes to this name here, at once there flashes into his mind the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of Paul, the Savior of lost sinners. And that's all good so far as it goes. But to the Jewish reader of the Greek text of this letter, the book of Hebrews, the reaction would be somewhat different. He would say to himself 
that the name Jesus in the Greek text is just the translation of the Hebrew name, Yeshua, the name of the God of Israel that points to his distinctive nature as one who saves. The idea of deity would come to his mind. So for the Jewish reader who was the recipient of this letter, he would read it like this, but we do see him. So verse 8 ends with, we don't see mankind living as he should, verse 9, but we do see him who was made like man, like us, lower than the angels, namely God. This is incredible. So now we come back to, to Luke and we find that Jesus is being presented as the Son of Man. You see, man was always intended to live out the image of God. But it was never within man himself to do this. It always took God for God to be seen in the man. And we know that from Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 3, we know that this is, this is the death that man experiences. This is the fall that man has. So now Jesus comes onto the scene as son of man. For the first time since Genesis chapter 3, we see a man who's living the way man was created to live. And now because of that, there's great hope for all of mankind. And so son of man is a very important title that's given to him and repeated throughout the gospel. And then here um, it is a chart that kind of builds on this. And this, these are the four sections that I want us to spend time with in studying through Luke. First of all, the first three chapters will cover the introduction of the Son of Man. Here he is, and this is this is the and we're going to see some of the results, how mankind is affected by this ministry, by the Son of Man. Then in chapters four to eight, we'll look at the ministry of the Son of Man. He, he comes in verses 1 to 3. Verses 4 to 8, we'll look at his ministry among mankind. Then verses 9 to 18, we'll cover the rejection of mankind toward the Son of Man. And then we'll finish in verses 19, chapters 19 to 24, looking at the crucifixion and the resurrection, because that's the gospel. So often we, we, we only present half a gospel. But the gospel, according to Acts, it's really interesting. I challenge you, read through the book of Acts. Uh, you know, I know Charlie's taken us through it, so it, it should be fresh in our mind. But every time, without exception, when they preach, every time in the book of Acts, they preach the death and the resurrection of Christ. This is the gospel. And so we're, we're going to spend time looking at, at this as well, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of Man. Um, so anyway, there's, I, I won't go through the whole chart because of time, but that's the four main sections of the book, and that's how we're going to break it up. I think we'll do three sessions for each section on this chart. So three, three sessions uh, in, in, with the introduction of the Son of Man, three with the ministry of the Son of Man, and three with the rejection, and three with the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. So I kind of give you an idea of where we'll be going. So let's go ahead and start now in chapter 1. And the first lesson I've entitled, For Nothing Will Be Impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. 
Um, in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at Zechariah and Elizabeth as well as Mary. These three individuals and the obstacle that they had to face and how they went about facing that obstacle. So it, with that in mind, I, I'd like to ask us that question. Just how are we facing the obstacles right now that we are encountering? Whatever they may be. You know, how do we, how, how do we face the, the, bless you, how do we face the, the, the frustration that has been ours with COVID? You know, no matter where you stand on your thoughts with that, how, how do you face that? Because certainly it's been an obstacle for us. I mean, none of us have ever lived through anything like this, right? You know, we've read about some of it, but, but how, do, how do you face that? You know, the election we've just been through and all that's involved in that. You know, how much has it affected you? How much has it, has it, has it affected your thoughts and the way you live? How has it affected the way you sleep? How has it affected the way you are with those around you? How do we face? And then, of course, we all have different things that we're, we're dealing with. So how do we face those things? I think it's, you know, it's so easy for us to read Scripture and, de uh, and um, detach ourselves from what we're reading. You know, it's always about somebody else learning something. It's always about somebody else's issues. But we need to, to remember that, that you know, the, the Lord is wanting to talk to us. He's wanting to work in our hearts. He's wanting to, according to Romans, He's wanting to conform us to the image of His Son. So what is He saying to us as we work through these things? So how do you face these things? I, I find it amazing in chapter 1 in verse 37 that Mary, who we believe was probably, you know, preteen age at this time, you know, when she faces what she's having to face at that age, her response in verse 37 is, nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, how often... How often do we struggle with that? And I remember when I was a child, uh, I was uh, spending the night at a neighbor's house, a few blocks away from home. And uh, the next day, we woke up, and we were playing and just having fun. And I got a phone call from my mom telling me that it was time for me to get home. So I started walking home. As soon as I got out on the street and started walking, I could hear this dog barking at me a few hundred yards off. And the closer I got, the more vicious and serious the dog got. I was, uh, I was only about 10 years old, and I started to devise a plan as to how I would get past this dog. Because I could see that the dog wasn't chained or fenced up, so I, I found a rock, and it was a nice baseball-sized rock. And the closer I got to the dog, the more I'd psych myself up, I'm going to handle this, I'm going to handle this, I'm going to handle this. And the dog was getting more vicious and more vicious, and you could, you, you know, spit was starting to come out of his mouth. He was just irate that I would dare to be on his street. And when I got right in front of the house, the dog came, came out after me, full, full tilt. And I took that rock, and I threw that rock at the dog, and it went as straight as an arrow, about 10 feet over his head. He kept coming, and I turned around in a panic, and there was in Louisiana, one of the great things about Louisiana, South Louisiana, is that we have really deep ditches. I jumped the ditch, and I stood on the other side of the ditch, and that was enough. The dog was satisfied. I was far enough away from him. I ran back to my, my friend's house and into the house, found my friend's mother, told her what was going on, and I was in a panic. 
And she says, it's not a problem, Kelly, just get in my car. So I got in her car, and I remember when we drove, drove out on the street, I could see that dog. Couldn't hear it, but I could see him. And he was just as angry and just as vicious. And the closer we got, the madder he got. When we got right in front of that house, that dog ran out toward the car, straight at me, just barking and snarling and just as angry as could be, right up to me. And I remember just getting as close to the window as I could, so I could get as close to that dog as I could and just stare at him while we drove by. And I could see just that frustration on the dog as it went by. See, my point is this. You know, it's a silly illustration, but it's one that the Lord's brought back to, me, to, to mind year after year after year. I'm 55, and I can't get that picture out of my mind. I could not handle that problem. Running to someone else who could did not take the problem away. It just eliminated the effect the problem had on me. That I could live, I could, I could go right down the same path, I could go right past the dog, but the dog couldn't touch me because I was with my friend's mother. Do we, it's a simple story with just a simple lesson. And that's the idea, it's simple, isn't it? Paul was afraid that we would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of Jesus Christ. He was never afraid that we would stop studying our Bible. Isn't that amazing? That's not what Paul was afraid of. He wasn't afraid that we would stop attending church, that we would stop worshiping. He wasn't afraid that we would stop witnessing. He was afraid that we would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of Jesus Christ. It's simple, isn't it? Not necessarily easy, but simple. And so with that thought, let's go on. And let's look at these three characters and the obstacle that they had to face. Let's look at, first of all, Elizabeth and Zacharias. We'll, uh, we'll start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the, at the appointed, in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you will give him the name John. Let's go to verse 13. Well, I guess, yeah, I just did that, didn't I? Uh, let's go to verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? So we see what their obstacles are. First of all, Zacharias and Elizabeth have, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself, I'm sorry. Zacharias and Elizabeth, they had no children and both were advanced in, in years. So they're too old to have children. Can't happen. And then in verse 27, we see that Mary makes it known, I'm a virgin. How am I supposed to have a child? Can't happen. That just can't be. It's beyond, it's beyond me for this. You know, I think it's interesting that God has never been confined to man's ability. He never has been. Never been confined to our ability. Let's uh, turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18. And I, let's see. Now, just to give you some of the, to fill in some of the background here. This is where God has come to Abram, changes his name to Abraham, father of a multitude, and changes Sarai's name to Sarah, princess, and tells him that you're going to have a son by Sarah. We know that Abraham's first response was, you know, first he laughs, and then he begs, oh, oh, God, please let my son Ishmael live before you. And that all takes place in chapter 17, and God looks at him, and it's you know, basically saying, look what I've done. Look what I have done for you. Look what I have done. Your promise was that I would have a child. I was getting too old, so obviously there was something that was required of me, something I had to do, so I did it. Look what I did for you. And God says, very simply, he says, no. And he goes on and says, but you're going to have the son that I promised you, and this son is going to come from Sarah. Now, when this happens, when this comes about, she, she'll be 90 years old and he'll be 100. And we're so used to that. Aren't we? We're so familiar with the story, it doesn't even impact us anymore. You know, so, you know, what I, what I like to do uh, when I'm teaching at the, the Bible schools is I, I'll, I'll ask, because a lot of the Bible schools have an outreach to a nursing home, and I'll ask them, how many of you are involved in that a nursing home outreach? They raise their hands. I said, okay, the next time you go to your outreach, I want you to take a look at the residents and remember this story. And it, it always does kind of, you, you get the eyes, you know, they, 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 oh my goodness, yeah, that's right. You see, this is impossible. Both of these things are impossible, and this is what they have to face. They're having to face the impossible. But look at, uh, in chapter 18, and so in verse 11, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? my Lord being old also. And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? And here we go. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
at the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Are you convinced of this? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? We, uh, my uh, new responsibilities at His Hill, I'm, I'm back part-time, and my responsibilities are to work with the alumni. One of the things that has been concerning for me with our alumni over the years is that it's, it's very difficult for them to fit back in after they've left. You know, being in that environment for a year, uh, being encouraged toward Christ, not only from staff and guest speakers, but also with each other. Uh, to, to go back it can, be, can be very difficult. One of the students was telling me uh, about his experience, and, and you know, I, actually my family and I have gone through it as well because you know, we've been gone for six years, and it, it took a very long time for us to be able to, 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 to just, and the Lord had to, he was really working on our hearts with us, but it took a couple of years before we actually could find uh, fellowship once again. And one of our students was telling me, former students, was telling me the story of going back, sitting down with his friends, and his friends were so upset. They were so upset with how things were going in the church, some of the sad issues that were going on, and they, they started to talk about how they needed to take care of this, what needed to be done. And they were sitting there in, in their conversation and coming up with a plan on how they could take care of this and what they needed to do. And uh, our, our alumni was just looking at them, and he says, guys, we have all that we need for this situation. We need, to, we need to look to Jesus. We need to trust Him and respond to Him. He can take care of this. He doesn't need us to come up with our best ideas. And they looked at Him and they said, well, yeah, of course, we need Jesus. And then they went on with their plans. And He says, Kelly, I don't understand what's going on. And there's a, there's a, a, there can be a, a frustration among our alumni, but but, are, you know, do, do you understand what I'm getting at? Do we, are we convinced that God just doesn't need me? He doesn't need me for His will to be done. You know, I, I, I've known people who have, I, I know this one man who was so well-versed in Scripture. He knew the Hebrew language so well that when he went to seminary, his professor told him, don't bother coming to the classes here are the dates for the exams. He knew it better than his professor. He, doctrine and theology, he was a wealth of knowledge. I remember one time I was struggling over a certain passage and I went to him for the answer and he looked at me and he gave me a two-word answer. And I walked away feel, feeling like an idiot because it was that, it was so clear, yeah. You're right. Actually, it was a one-word answer. But all that knowledge, he... He was, he was so, he's an incredible man. He knew, he once debated Muslims in London at Piccadilly Square, and he had them backed into a corner. They were, they were actually preaching on the corner, and he went across the street to talk to them. He had them so mixed up and backed into a corner using their, their own writings. He knew it better than they did, that they had to get him out of there because he was causing a riot. They were ready to kill him. 
Yeah, he, it, this is an incredible individual, but all the wealth of knowledge, all that study, all the right answers did not prevent him from having an affair with a woman in his, the church he was pastoring and absolutely destroying, I mean destroying his family, one of his kids ending up in prison. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, and the law depends on me, so if, so if righteousness comes through what I can do, then it goes on and says that Christ died needlessly. Are you convinced of this? Are you convinced that there is nothing too difficult for the Lord? Or do you think He needs your help? So if that's the case then, if there's nothing too difficult for the Lord, then what is God's plan for these people? Well, we see in verse 13, a verse we've already read, but the second part of it, he, the angel says, this is my plan. This is God's plan for you. Okay? Uh, Zacharias, the old man, married to an old woman. This is my plan for you. Right at the end of verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will be, bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. Okay, and then in verse 35, this is his plan for the Virgin Mary. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And I think that's interesting that in the book that emphasizes Christ being the Son of Man, we're also told that He is the Son of God. So He is the man who lives as man was created to live. And so we see this is, what, this is God's plan for them. Now how is he going to do this? Well, in both verses, 25 and 35, we're told that it's God that will do this. It's, God is going to be the one to do this, not them. Major Thomas once said this, Nothing has to be possible, it just has to be right. Nothing has to be possible, it just has to be right. Are we convinced of that? Can it only be possible, can it only be possible if I can understand it? Can it only be possible if I can achieve it? We had a, a couple uh, a number of years ago come to Bible school, and you know them, Dale and Patty Epp. A lot of you know them. Dale and Patty... Uh, had, you know, it was really miraculous that they ended up in Bible school. Both of them had lived a, a really rebellious life. And the Lord started to work in their hearts, and uh, they came to us uh, with uh, a little rough around the edges, uh, but with, a, with the right heart, though. And one of the, one of the things is uh, they, they, were, they were scared to come. And they were, very, uh, they were very upset with me at one point because I had taught a class called speaking methods. So we would teach the students how to give a presentation, how to, how to, how to teach a lesson, how to, how, how to give their testimony, just how to think it through and lay it out on paper. And the assignment for that class was that they were going to have to do that before the whole class, and the class was going to grade them. They were petrified and angry. They came to me insisting that they be exempt from this assignment. And I said, guys, I can't do that. I can't exempt you. I can't, you know, not let you do this and require it of everybody else in the student body. 
and they got irate. They told me, you don't understand. We are not going to do it. And they went on and on, but they, can't, they couldn't do this. This was beyond them. They weren't going to do it. They were adamant. So we talked a little while about it, and very begrudgingly, they went ahead and did it. Well, you know how the story ends with Dale and Patty, those of you who know them. Dale went on to be one of the directors of one of the torchbearer centers in New Zealand. He went on to be a regular teacher and preacher, and now to this day, he, he travels and teaches. He teaches children. He has his own ministry there, there in, the, in, the, in the South Island in New Zealand, and he, he, will, he travels and teaches and preaches every opportunity he can. I don't know that Dale ever says no if he's asked. The Lord does not need your ability. He just doesn't need it. You know, think about Moses. Lord, I can't speak. <laughs> that was no problem for God, was it? Not at all. Do we understand, along with Paul in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Are you convinced of this? Do you believe this? And so what was the reality for these three people? Okay, we find it in verse 24, the first part of verse 24. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. You know, we're, we're so familiar with this story that we just read past it, don't we? You know, we, this is miraculous. She and her husband could not do this. There was nothing in and of themselves that, that, would, that, 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 that would make them capable of this. And but we already know, this because we know what we've already read, that this is God at work. This is God doing. I think it's amazing, isn't it? You go, I, I'm not going to take you to it, but something that really grabs my attention in the book of Hebrews toward the end, we find that God... You know, there's this demand on our life. As believers, there is a great demand on our life, and it is beyond us. It is His very image. But then we find in the book of Hebrews that God actually goes on and lives the very demand that He places on us. Isn't that amazing? And so His requirement for us is a reality because of Him. And so here we are. Uh, we see that now... Elizabeth is pregnant. And then also in chapter 2 and verse 5, we know that the, uh, Caesar has called for the census and Joseph goes with his wife back to Bethlehem. And we, we pick up in verse 5, they go back in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him and was with child. Now he keeps, he, she is still a virgin, yet she is pregnant. Now, go to the high school biology class and explain that one. How is that possible? It's impossible, isn't it? Well, nothing has to be possible. It just has to be right. Look at, uh, let, let's spend some time here in closing. Let's, let's look at some of the wording of Scripture. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 14, please. Exodus chapter 14. And in verse 25, 
Uh, I want to back up just a little bit. Um, okay, they're up against the, okay, uh, Pharaoh and the most powerful army in the world at that time is chasing them down. They're trapped. The army, the Egyptian army is on one side and the Red Sea is on the other. And what does God tell them to do? First of all, Moses tells them, be still. Shut up. Stop complaining. Stop freaking out. Be still and see the salvation of the Lord. And then God tells them, okay, this is my salvation. Go forward. Go forward? It's a, the, the whole Red Sea is in front of us. What do you mean go forward? That's impossible. It doesn't have to be possible. It just has to be right. And so what happens, you know, what happens, the, the Red Sea is blown open. And, and, and people who have studied this said in order for that many people to get across in one night, you know, we've, we've got this picture in our mind of this little, little pathway that's opened up, you know, you know, they go through two at a time. In order for them to get across, that many people to get across in one night, the, the Red Sea had to be opened up three miles. And so God just blows it up. And they walk across on, on dry land, but then look in verse 25 what happens. Once they get through and they look back, and this is what they see. They see that the Egyptian army is chasing them, is in trouble. But look how it reads. He caused their chariot wheel, wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Isn't that incredible wording? He's doing this. He caused the chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. The Lord is fighting. Now this is consistent throughout Scripture. While we're in the Old Testament, go to Genesis chapter 12. Now this is, this is the, uh, the, the Abrahamic covenant. This is when God comes to Abraham, who was not qualified for what God was appointing him to, by the way. You know, he... He was an idolater. He, was, uh, he had no children. And, and God's going to make a great nation out of this man. And so look at what happens here. In, in chapter 12, in verse, um, look, at the, look at the wording, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which... I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Five times in those three verses, this is the Abrahamic covenant. And remember, a covenant is an agreement. It's an agreement between two parties. So what's the agreement that Abraham enters into? God's part? I will. Five times in three verses. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. What is Abraham's part? Abraham's part is found in, um, at the end of verse 2. You shall be. Isn't that incredible? That's his agreement going into this. God says, I will, and because I will, you shall be. You shall be because I will. So we see that, that God's not requiring anything of, of Moses or anything of Abraham that, that he's to muster up from himself. I will, you shall be. But now, with that in mind, go to Hebrews chapter 8.
Hebrews chapter 8, this is the chapter where Jesus is being presented as the better covenant. And this is what he says about the better covenant. In verse 10 of chapter 8, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, God doesn't change. The wording is, and you can go on and read, there's more of it there all the way to chapter 12. God says, I will, and because I will, they shall be. They shall be because I will. And we go on through Scripture and we find the same thing. How about the wall of Jericho? You know, there, there Joshua is fa facing the first obstacle in entering into the promised land. And it's interesting, it's described as a land of rest, but the first thing you have to deal with is a battle. I think we get a little confused sometimes on what, what God's rest is. Because it's not something, it's someone. And as he goes out to look at the first obstacle that they have to face, he sees another man standing there. We know the story. The man is actually Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. And he comes as the head of the Lord's host, as the leader of the Lord's army. And he says this, this is my plan. Joshua wants to know, are you on my side or their side? And he says, you better be on my side. This is my plan. What I have for you is impossible, but watch what I do. And then again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And when the king looks into the furnace, instead of three men, he sees four men. The fourth one being like the Son of God. He's, he sees Christ. Jesus takes care of the problem. It's his. Are we convinced of these things? Are you convinced that there's nothing impossible with God because of Christ? What are the obstacles before you today, and how would the Lord have you deal with them? And what, is, what are the things, and maybe you come here thinking this is just an opportunity to get away from those things, and now here's this balding idiot that keeps reminding you of these things that you're having to fight with. You came here for a time of respite, and I keep wanting you to think about the issues you're battling with. Well, whatever those obstacles are, are you convinced that in Christ, the Son of Man, there is nothing impossible for God. There's two passages I'm closing with from Matthew 11 and John 15. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you convinced? Are you convinced that the Son of Man does not need your help? He does not need your input, but he wants you. Any thoughts?
Yes, sir.